My name is Father Jonathan St. Andre. I'm the Vice President of Franciscan Life. And I'm very just excited that we can have this panel tonight uh, where we seek together to learn more about the gift of diversity in liturgical worship and liturgical expression and the gift in the call to unity uh, within that diversity. And we have some wonderful panelists with us tonight. I'll share a little bit more uh, about them, about who they are, and about the structure of our night uh, after Father Sean Roberson, our university chaplain, leads us in an opening prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Dear Lord, we rejoice in this season that we are in, the season of your resurrection, and the power of your resurrection in our lives. Lord, we rejoice that on the last night of your life, you gave us the most precious gifts of your body and blood. And that is what we gather together this night in your name to discuss, to glorify, and to give you our hearts. Lord, I ask you to stand guard over this meeting that we may come together and be one as you so desired us to be one in the name of your Father, that you may continue to bless us and protect us and guide us with your wisdom, your knowledge and understanding to lead us to the deepest truth, the revealed truth of your love, your mercy, and your abiding presence. Protect our university, protect all of us in our needs in this time of pandemic. Bless us and keep us in your care. We ask this now in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father Sean. Tonight our panel presentation is dispelling myths about the extraordinary form liturgy and Vatican II. Uh, we may go beyond those areas, but we wanted to look at different expressions in the liturgical life that find uh, a part, are a part of our university life here. You know, many times when people think of Francis of Assisi, they forget that one of the things he was most concerned about was the liturgy, was reverence, was care for the Eucharist, was the gift of the liturgy of the hours and the gift of Holy Mass. And what a blessing that we at the university are seeking to grow in our reverence and our understanding of the liturgy. And we have some wonderful panelists tonight who I think can fill us in on the wideness of the tradition and help us to continue to grow. I'd like to do a brief introduction of our panelists. Um, at the very far end, the most beautiful of our panelists, <laughs> Dr. Susan Waldstein is an adjunct professor here at the university where she teaches dogmatic theology and theology of the church. Dr. Waldstein and her husband, Dr. Michael Waldstein, have spent their entire adult lives in service to the church, including being members of Pope St. John Paul II's Pontifical Council for the Family. And she's the mother of eight children. So we welcome Dr. Susan Waldstein with us here tonight. Yes, let's give her a hand. To her, my right, her right, uh, Dr. Michael Cirilla is a professor of theology here at the university in the bachelor's and master's theology programs and a previous director of the MA theology program. And Dr. Cirilla has caught, taught many different courses at the university. Uh, he's authored a book through Catholic University of America Press titled The Ideal Bishop, Aquinas' Commentaries on the Pastoral Epistles, along with more than 25 scholarly publications. 
Dr. Cirilla has reviewed the book, Pope Francis, The Legacy of Vatican II by Eduardo Echeverria and has written The Magisterium and Its Interpretation, a Theological Handbook for Bishops, Clergy, and Theologians. We welcome Dr. Michael Cirilla. Dr. Alan Trek has been a professor of theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville since 1978. We're so blessed to have Alan here. He's, I'm not gonna go through the many different areas you've taught, but he's done about everything in theology and philosophy here at the university. Um, and I thought this was an interesting thing. Enrollment in the theology program has grown from 20 to 30 students when Dr. Schreck began to over 550 students presently. So he's been a part of that growth in the university. And so we're very excited to have Dr. Schreck with us tonight. A mystery friar who you may have not have seen around campus because he's not stationed on campus, but he's visiting us here and is an alumnus of the university is Father Patrick Whittle. Father Pat Whittle is a native of Levittown, Pennsylvania. He graduated from the university here with a BA in history in 2006. Upon graduation, he entered our province of the most sacred heart of Jesus in Loretto, Pennsylvania, professed his vows in 2008, and was ordained priest to the priesthood on October 22nd, sorry, October 26th, 2013. He earned his MDiv, Master's in Divinity, from the Catholic University of America, and an MA in History from the Catholic University, from American University, excuse me. He completed the STL in Liturgical Studies at the Catholic University of America, and he's currently a doctoral candidate, so pray for him, He's getting there, getting very close, uh, a doctoral candidate in liturgical studies. So we welcome Father Pat Whittle. Many of us know our very own Father Sean Roberson, and we don't want to take it for granted that we know him. He's also one of my brother friars and priests of the Third Order Regular Province, the Most Sacred Heart of Jesus. He works very diligently as the... Um, uh, university chaplain here, working especially in Christ the King Chapel. He pre previously served as the director of the Priestly Discernment Program and assistant university chaplain. He was a postulant director for our province for eight years. Uh, he also worked with the St. Francis Retreat League and did campus ministry at St. Francis University. And at one time he was in Texas working as an associate pastor at a parish. So we welcome Father Sean Roberson. And there are two other members of our planning committee that I particularly want to thank, and I know they're in the audience. Father, I think Father Matt Russick might be somewhere. I saw him a little bit earlier. Father Matt's in the, in the very corner. That's good. He's not close enough to heckle me. I appreciate that. So Father Matt Russick has been a great help in planning for this night. And also Dr. Stephen Hildebrand, who I see in the back here. Welcome, Dr. Stephen, from our theology faculty, who's been a part of the planning tonight. So these are the great folks that are here tonight on our panel. This is how it's gonna work. We're gonna to try to use our time well. Um, each panelist has been given about five minutes, that's a tough task, to give us a little bit of context. Just a little bit of context on the issues we'll be talking about. Uh, we'll, we'll start with, um, with Father Pat, and then we'll move to Dr. Schreck and Dr. Waldstein. And they'll be talking about different areas, but we're ho the hope is that they give a little bit of context and they spawn some questions in you. Because the majority of the night will be question and answer. 
And so after the presenters present, you are welcome to come and sit in the chairs up here. We can kind of make a little queue. Lindsay Schrock is over here, our director of Franciscan Life Online. So you can come up in that area. There's a microphone here for questions. Um, and before we have question and answer, I'll say a little bit more. But with that, I'll stop talking and let Father Pat Whittle begin his sharing tonight. Thank you, Father Jonathan. And actually, one of the things I did here when I was a student was I was on the liturgy committee, so it's kind of surreal to be able to talk about the liturgy on the Fieldhouse stage where I serve um, many, many Fieldhouse masses. And those on the liturgy committee, I know how hard you work to be able to make sure that the liturgies here on campus uh, are beautiful and are uh, true worship of God. Uh, the context that I was asked to speak on is a brief, very broad stroke uh, history of the Roman Rite. Impossible to do it in five minutes, but I will try to give the broadest of strokes there. Uh, but in a reminder of that, when we study the liturgy, when we talk about it, I think it's very important that we do when we have conversations like this so that we can build that unity that the liturgy promotes and guides us to. And that all of this, the liturgy itself, is aimed to glorification of God, is aimed to the glory of God, and secondarily for the sanctification of his people. And so as we reflect on the liturgy and as we think about it, we're reminded of that importance it is in our lives as Catholics. Vatican uh, II, sacrificing the children, speaks the Eucharist as the sacrament of love, the sign of the unity, the bond of charity, and Benedict XVI in his letter talked about how critical it was that unity be maintained as he allowed for the greater use of the extraordinary form of the Roman Rite. Speaking of these two forms, the Missal of John the and the Missal of Paul VI, as two uses or two forms of one Roman Rite, not two different rites, but one Roman Rite. And then when we study the history of it, when we look at the history of the Roman liturgy, we see different points in the history where there is a diversity of uses of the Roman Rite. In the early days, the history that we have in the study of the 20th century uh, revealed the different sacramentaries, the ordinance of money that gave us the different rubrics, and we see in Rome itself that there was a liturgy parish churches celebrated by the priests, and a slight variation that was celebrated by the Pope in the basilicas. And this continued in different forms throughout in the 13th century, which uh, is the focus of my doctoral dissertation actually in uh, Franciscan liturgy in the 13th century specifically. Francis of Assisi writes in the uh, later rule that the friars are to pray the divine office according to the liturgy of the Roman Curia or the papal court. And that implies that there were other forms of the Roman Rite existing in the 13th century, and there were in the basilicas, even in St. John Lateran, the basilica, where the Curia had their own form of the Roman Rite, the canons of the basilica also had a variation of the Roman Rite, and also the titular churches as well. Slight variations, and from some of those variations, uh, the Dominican use liturgy forms as well. Uh, which is a slight variation of the Roman Rite with different additions uh, to it. 
Uh, and this leads all the way to Trent. Trent, when uh, it entrusted to the Pope to uh, reform the liturgical books, instructed and set up a commission. The Pope promulgated the Missal of 1570 uh, with the papal bull Quo Primum. Quo Primum speaks of uh, any liturgy in the Western Church that was used for more than 200 years, local or religious orders, could continue to be used. This is why the Ambrosian Rite continued to be used in Milan, and the Dominican use rite, uh, Dominican use of the Roman Rite, continued to be used afterwards as well, along with other variations. And this all leads into the liturgical movement, the historical research that took place then, uncovering some of these print, uh, the uh, publication of different critical editions of these older Roman uh, liturgical sources uh, that allowed us to read the original languages uh, in Latin and Greek uh, to be able to understand what the worship of the church looked like in the Western church and to be able to uh, incorporate that into the liturgical reforms that took place uh, in light of Sacrosanctum Concilium. Uh, so with that, I'll uh, pause there and uh, give it to Dr. Shrek to speak about, I think, Vatican II, and uh, hopefully to answer questions later. Thank you, Father Patrick. Um, I have a PowerPoint, and the purpose of this is mainly to keep me on track and not speak too long. So the first slide is simply the theme that I'd like to address, Catholic unity. And it's hard to read the scripture quote there, but it's from uh, Ephesians 4.3. Be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And I hope that's the overall theme tonight, unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Um, I, I was asked to address uh, this next slide here. Yes, is... Um, I was asked to address, some, say something about this, the authority of the Second Vatican Council, only because it's come up in, in the church recently, there's been some questioning about, well, is Vatican II really an authoritative council? Does it have the authority, the same authority as Trent or Vatican I or Nicaea or previous councils? As I, as I, uh, my answer is right there uh, on the overhead, the Second Vatican Council has the same authority as the other 20 ecumenical councils of the church. Um, I'm not gonna go into, um, in any, if anyone would be like to see a source for, to support that, uh, at the, the entrance to the field house, I have on a, a, a table right outside a couple of handouts. And one of the handouts is entitled The Authority of Vatican II. And basically it's quotes from uh, St. John Paul II, Pope Benedict, uh, Pope Francis, and uh, I think one other recent pope, all who basically say Vatican II is the guide for the church in our time, that it's an authoritative council. Um, and, and as I said on the overhead there, as I write, the council's authority is binding both in doctrine uh, and or discipline, which would include liturgical norms, as long as its norms are in force. Obviously, over the course of history, as Father Patrick said, there can be a change in liturgical norms, but the, the, the norms set by the document Father uh, referred to is the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is basically the foundation of our, our present-day liturgical practices and usages uh, in the Catholic Church. Um, and I, I add to this on the overhead, the central teachings of Vatican II are found in its four constitutions. And those are like the four pillars of the, of the council. And one of those pillars is 
the, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. And other documents are interpreted, especially in light of these other three. Uh, to the next slide, to keep things moving. Um, these are more, I think, my pastoral reflections on liturgy. Um, the, the first, the liturgy, especially the Mass, is the highest expression of the Church's unity, the source and summit of the spiritual life. Uh, as it says in Sacrosanctum Concilium Article 10, uh, uh, which is really a beautiful statement, um, Let's see if I can see. The liturgy is the summit toward which the activity of the church is directed. It is also the fount from which all her power flows. And it goes on. So the liturgy is so central of, as the unifying force in our, our church, the, the source of our spiritual life, and the summit of our communal, wor communal worship. Um, and then I make a pastoral reflection, how it must grieve the Lord when the liturgy becomes a source of contention, a battleground, instead of a source of an, ex an expression of our unity as Catholics. In other words, we shouldn't be having liturgical wars. We should be uh, finding that common ground uh, that, uh, because it, this liturgy is so much a source of our unity as Catholics. My next slide um, is, the church is a mystery of unity and a mystery of unity and diversity. Uh, unity and essentials, diversity in many other in many different ways. There are diversity of spiritualities, of forms of religious life, uh, devotions. Sometimes when we get into these discussions, we we're almost uh, it can become sort of like, well, this is the best spirituality. This is the best way. Uh, the you know. Uh, as if there's one spirituality that everyone ought to subscribe to or one liturgical preference that ought to be clearly what everyone should be following. But this is not the, in the, the, the nature of the church. We're Catholic. Uh, we're not, it's not a uniformity, but a mystery of unity and diversity. And as I go on in this overhead, this diversity extends to cultural expressions, different musical forms, musical styles. These may change over time. And we should respect this diversity, which reflect the church's richness and Catholicity. The church's pastors discern what is legitimate diversity. So it's not, I'm saying, I'm not saying anything goes. This is ultimately, there are, there's discernment. And of course, it's up to the bishops, in particular, the church's pastors, to discern what are the legitimate forms of what is legitimate diversity within the church, maintaining our unity. The next slide um, is more of a... I'd like to give, this is more of my own pastoral um, reflection. When we're, and this is sort of my idea of how we ought to be discussing these things uh, among ourselves. Because some people, many of us are passionately committed to some particular liturgical expression or form of music that we love. And I think that's a, a beautiful thing in the church. Um, and how should we, how do we share this with each other? And my proposition here is that we share the beauty we have found. In other words, we should be free to say, wow, you know, uh, praise and worship music really draws me close to the Lord. Or the extraordinary form liturgy really has deepened my faith and, uh, and my love of God. Uh, and, and we should have that freedom to share this, and, but respecting those in the church whose experience is different. Uh, so I think that the goal I would propose for Catholic unity is uh, share, share the beauty you have found, but don't impose it on someone else as if, well, 
if you really understood what I'm saying, you would be converted to my point of view. Uh, as I say under this, our goal as missionary disciples is not to convert others to our spirituality or our liturgical preference, but to Jesus Christ. We all need to deepen in that. We should respect, listen, and even learn from those, all who follow Christ, especially those united in our Catholic faith. So I believe unity is something possible. And we can differ in our liturgical or musical expressions within the liturgy and within worship. And that's a beautiful thing. Share with each other openly, but don't try to impose that as if you need to convert someone to your particular form. I'm not gonna to try to convert any of the Franciscans to become Dominicans or anything like that. I sort of joke here. Obviously that would be ridiculous because everyone has this unique calling. My final point is just some scriptures. Um, and uh, I think our focus should be, we're called here to Franciscan University to be, to be missionary disciples. We have a world to convert to Christ. I think we're gonna convert that world if they, if they look at us and say not we're contentious with each other, but we live in real charity, the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And these scriptures accentuate this point. St. Paul, Galatians 3:28. there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You are all one in Jesus Christ. A second uh, text from Jesus himself in John's gospel, by this, all men, by this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That should be the witness uh, of our, our love for the Lord expressed in our, our various liturgical um, forms of, of worship that we prefer. Thirdly, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Christ, Ephesians 4.15. Let us speak the truth as we see it, but speak that always in charity and love. Amen. When Father Jonathan asked me to speak on this panel, I had just read one of C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters about liturgical parties in the Church of England. It seemed providential, so I'm going to share some of the advice from the devil screw tape to his nephew Wormwood about using liturgical preferences to lead his patient into sin. My dear Wormwood, if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. The reason should be obvious. In the first place, the parochial organization should always be attacked because being a unity of place and not of likings, it brings people of different class and psychology together in the kind of unity the enemy desires. By enemy, of course, he means God. The congregational principle, on the other hand, makes each church into a kind of club. And finally, if all goes well, into a coterie or faction. In the second place, the search for a suitable church makes the man a critic when the enemy wants him to be a pupil. What he wants of the layman in church is an attitude which may indeed be critical in the sense of rejecting what is false or unhelpful, but which is wholly uncritical in the sense that it does not appraise, does not waste time thinking about what it rejects, but lays itself open to 
uncommenting, humble receptivity to any nourishment that is going. I feel indicted by Screwtape's words, since there have certainly been times when I have judged liturgies or sermons severely in a way that made me the critic who knows better rather than the recipient of a gift beyond price. Clearly, there are objective standards, rubrics, and canon laws governing liturgy that it is an act of justice on the part of the priest as well as obedience to obey. Priests are ordained to give the faithful the mass and sacraments in a reverent way that follows these official directives. They are rendering less than what is due to to disobey these norms, and it is right to avoid egregious liturgies when possible. But for most of us, it is not our duty to study the norms in order to know if the priest is doing any little thing wrong. Our fundamental attitude towards mass and the sacraments should be one of immense gratitude and humble awe. Whatever the liturgy was like, we have just been permitted to participate in the infinite goodness of of Christ's sacrifice to the Father. If we have received communion, we have just received God himself, the infinite good. However boring or unpleasing to our aesthetic taste or objectively ugly or in some ways unsuitable for worship, the liturgy was pales in comparison to its true greatness. It is making sacramentally present the greatest event in cosmic history. It is giving us a foretaste of the heavenly liturgy in which the angels unceasingly echo, holy, holy, holy. Our attitude towards those with a different liturgical taste than ours should always be governed by charity. Our love for our fellow Christians should be so much greater than our liturgical preference that we bend over backwards to assuage their scruples. Screwtape has more advice on this. All the purely indifferent things, candles and clothes and whatnot, are an admirable ground for our activities. We have quite removed from men's minds what that pestilent fellow Paul used to teach about food and other unessentials, namely, that the human without scruples should always give in to the human with scruples. You would think that they could not fail to see the application. You would expect to find the low churchman genuflecting and crossing himself, lest the weak conscience of his high brother should be moved to irreverence, and the high one refraining from these exercises, lest he should betray his low brother into idolatry. And so it might have been, but for our ceaseless labor. Without that, the variety of usage within the Church of England might have become a positive hotbed of charity and humility. If we approach all liturgical questions with humble gratitude and awe before the greatness of the sacred gift and charity toward those who have different liturgical sensibilities, then these very differences could become for us a source of unity and charity rather than an issue that divides. Thank you to each of our panelists. Just want to say a quick word on something that I 
gained from each of them, Father Pat sharing about the fact that there have always been, amidst the Roman rite, slight variations, traditions, and customs. The one Roman rite often seen even as recently as Pope Benedict as expression in two different forms, the ordinary and extraordinary form, but a unity under the one Roman rite. I appreciated Dr. Schreck reminding us of the call to common ground, but also recognizing legitimate diversity within liturgical expression. And thank you, Dr. Waldstein. Um, as a friar and a priest, I hadn't thought in a while about how my, I have an, a, a ministry of justice, that there is a due, uh, a due that I owe to the people of God and as a minister of the church, and that all of us are called to that fundamental attitude of gratitude, humility, and awe. I think that's a good segue into our time of questions. Um, what we're going to do now is we're gonna invite you, the students here, and maybe even some of our folks watching through our live stream uh, to ask questions. If you're here in person, you may come to the mic and have an orderly line for your questions. If you are online, uh, you can, I think there's a place you can send an email to Lindsay and she will be happy to represent your question here. So if you're in the line in person and Lindsay jumps in front of you, don't be affront affronted. We're just trying to make sure we cover some of the questions from the live stream. Just a reminder that this is not a debate. <laughs> uh, this is a, you're welcome to share your thoughts and perspectives, but I'd ask you to keep it tight, as they say, so that many people, if they want to, can ask questions and couch your uh, comments within the context of a question to either one or all of the panelists. And I'd also just remind the panelists to be brief as well so that we can get through as many questions as there are interest. So if anyone would like to come up and ask a question, you are welcome to do that. If you don't, we'll just keep talking at you. So we'd invite you to come forward. I'll recognize the speaker, then they can ask their question. Come on. To the mic. Go for it, Jack. Hello, Father. Um, yeah, uh, first, just to set the tone right, I wanted to ask, is, do you think we um, should talk more like, do you want this talk to be ordered more like what is within the church's authority to do or what it should do, do you think? It's kind of weirdly worded. Um, what I mean to say is, I don't have a, the greatest scope of knowledge, I'll be the first to admit, about you know uh, this or that about the council and what the part about the Second Vatican Council was. Uh, you know, Some people are like, oh, it was binding, it was unbinding. Uh, I'm, I'm just gonna take your guys' word for it because I don't, I don't know the details, but um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I'll just talk about, briefly, <laughs> What I, my perspective. Um, sure. Do you, you have a specific question though yeah. within that? Um, yeah. Should do, should we talk about what the church should do or what it can do in regards to the liturgy? Tonight. Are you, are you asking? What? Yeah. Like, I don't know. <laughs> sure. Sure. Well, why don't you? The panelists can 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 respond to that. Yeah. Okay. I suppose. I mean, as we see in the history of the church and the current status, I mean, the church has a role in 
um, relegating the liturgy and its canons and its rubrics in the general instructions. Um, each of the rites today have a general introduction that lays out a little bit of the theology, but also the um, rubrics and the standards for the liturgy. Um, it has a role in that, the bishop's authority, as well as the local pastor uh, in what is delegated to him. Uh, in his authority to be able to govern in the liturgy, uh, and also Rome's role in being the unifying um, of the whole church. So you have the congregation of the discipline of the sacraments to be able to issue those certain moments of liturgical uh, norms that we are instructed to celebrate and how to celebrate. I could say re really quickly, um, the question of what could or should be changed in the liturgy regarding you know, what the church should do, she's uh, uh, repeatedly stated, and it's in Sacrosanctum, it's in the Code of Canon Law as well, that the kind of overarching rule is for the good of souls, and implicit within that is also the glory to God. So it's, it's, the, it's proper glory to God and for the good of souls. So Sacrosanctum will say, no changes will, should be made unless it's for the good of souls. So there, there can be among people who are qualified to do it, a discussion or even a debate, not that we're having one now, but, but uh, about what would count as, as that. But, that. but that's the overarching goal. It's for, overarching goal for everything. That's what Dr. Shrek, I think, was saying too, is, is love, the love of, of unity with the good of souls. I just add, in the decree on uh, the Constitution on Sacred Liturgy, it said the full conscious and active participation of all the faithful in the liturgy is the primary goal of the liturgical renewal of the Second Vatican Council. So it was really, the goal would be how can we lead the faithful into a fuller, uh, full conscious and active participation in liturgical worship. And as Father uh, Patrick said and, and uh, Dr. Srila, I, I think that, you know, it's really um, a discernment, a pastoral discernment by the Pope in some instances, by local bishops uh, to see in their own jurisdiction what would be the thing that would promote the deeper, fuller worship. I could give just one quick example. Uh, here in the Diocese of Steubenville, uh, a previous bishop uh, established a, uh, a special parish for those involved in charismatic renewal and uh, this parish existed for 25 years. And we did some things like uh, praise and worship type music. We had certain, uh, the bishop approved certain times in the liturgy where we could have spontaneous praise. And, and it was all done according to, you know, what the bishop thought would be best for this particular uh, community. And it um, wasn't in competition with any other parish, but it was just, uh, the bishop has some latitude to discern in his, his own diocese what might promote uh, the deeper and richer uh, uh, liturgical participation in, in his jurisdiction. Just one last comment on that. Um, directing to paragraph 22 of Sacrosanctum Concilium uh, lays out a threefold um, of the authority of the church. First of all, the apostolic see. Second of all, the local bishop and um, to a certain extent, conferences of bishops. And then the third one, uh, which is also echoed in the general instruction of the Roman Missal, no other person, not even if he be, is a priest, may on his own add, remove, or change anything in the liturgy. 
Uh, so that's the kind of hierarchy that exists with the authority. Even though I, as a liturgical scholar, may have ideas and can share them, it's ultimately the church's authority to relegate that. Thank you. Um, and so I also kind of just wanted to specify, is there, is there room for like sharing of personal experience or thoughts? Because I'm not, I'm not sure how exactly to word everything as a question. Um, I guess um, one of the reasons I really wanted to come is um, because, um, like, I favor the traditional Latin Mass. Uh, I'm still relatively new to it, but um, yeah, I'm I'm totally okay with you know. I believe both forms are valid. Um, I just, I guess, I wanted to come and say that I prefer one because uh, I've I've sort of. I think it's good to allow people both because people will go to where they're fed and I just see a lot of good fruits that are coming from traditional liturgy. I grew up in Massachusetts and uh, my home parish, uh, I think it actually has one of the biggest like life team groups in the archdiocese. And so I went to those events for a really long time. Um, but I, did, I just didn't feel like I was being fed and it was very strange like, um, you know, a lot of my friends would go and it, it felt like they wouldn't stay in for very long um, church-wise. But I've noticed across the country that um, there's parishes like the Fraternity of St. Peter um, or the Institute of Christ the King that have borne these really great and, and beautiful fruits. And uh, I'm actually wearing a fraternity pin right now, but um, I, uh, going there, I feel like it's taken me out of myself in the sense that I find it very challenging at times to worship and difficult, but that's why I like it a lot. <laughs> it's, it kind of calls me out of myself to focus on God. And so, yeah, I'm not sure exactly if I have a specific question in mind, but at least that's my experience. And I just wanted to say thank you, everybody, for coming out tonight, uh, fathers and professors both. Thank you, Jack. That was good. It's always hard to be the first one. So your question was good and your comment was good. Thank you. Please. Hi, thank you guys for being here. Um, my question is for um, Miss, I forget your name, uh, Doctor? What is your name? Waldstein. Waldstein? Waldstein, okay. Um, so you highlighted uh, an attitude that we should have towards the liturgy. Um, and I just wanted you to maybe expand or, or clarify um, how we might also have that, that same um, attitude towards, um, I don't want to use the word underperforming, but uh, an uncatechizing parish or... I took a ride through Pittsburgh the other day on my way here, and uh, I just couldn't help but to notice the Catholic churches that were waving colorful flags, um, symbolizing something that is not what the Catholic Church um, respects, and, and um, they still consecrate the Eucharist, the Eucharist behind those doors. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Um, 
if heresy is being taught in a parish, which in fact that's what's happening, if um, something that's objectively sinful is being celebrated, that's in fact heretical. Um, then I would not go to that parish and I might even write a letter to the bishop just letting him know that that's happening. Um, but if I needed to go to mass and that was the mass I had to go to or if I went to that parish not knowing they were teaching heresy, as long as the priest is intending to do what the church does and saying the words of consecration, that's the mass and that's Christ. And so you need to give as much reverence to that mass as to any mass. Though I would not, I would not choose to go back if they're teaching heresy. Do you, do you think you might clarify what um, liturgical preference means? The church's preference for litur liturgy? It, it, is that different from like a... Um, I think I'm confused about what you were saying about liturgical parties and liturgical preference. Um, by liturgical parties or preference, I meant that someone may very strongly prefer... Um, the Novus Ordo in English, priest facing the people, and someone else might very strongly prefer the extraordinary form, the priest um, facing the East um, in Latin. Um, so that's a liturgical preference, and it could become like a liturgical party if someone um, becomes so attached to that, that um, they become more attached to that than to, say, charity. So a liturgical preference is legitimate, but it shouldn't um, override other things. So for instance, if you prefer one form of the liturgy, but that's not available to you on a certain day, you shouldn't not go to Mass, but go to Mass with the other form of the liturgy rather than miss Mass because you don't want to attend Mass with that liturgy, if that makes sense. Okay. So liturgical parties have a bad connotation or, like, it's not supposed to be that way? So once, well, as C.S. Lewis is having it, the liturgical party then has a bad connotation because it's making that preference um, too important. Okay. Thank you. Hello. Thank you guys so much for coming out. Um, we really appreciate it as students uh, getting to learn, especially something I feel like really divides the student population at times. Um, I especially want to thank you, Dr. Wilstein, for what you said um, earlier about keeping like Christ at the center and Jesus always at the center, because I also agree, like, Jesus should be treated with the most like reverence and like it, Jesus should like he should be the priority and above every preference. So I I really appreciate what you said about that earlier. Um, my question is about 
um, extraordinary um, Eucharistic ministers, meaning like lay people distributing the Eucharist. Um, as I understand it, in Vatican II, and I, I may be wrong, <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, please, but as I understand it, in Vatican II, they, it said that, <laughs> yeah, to, to, not to quote, obviously, but it, basically their, their consensus was that Eucharistic, like, extraordinary Eucharistic ministers should be used only in, like, specific circumstances. Um, for example, if the congregation is very, very large, um, or if there's no priest available to distribute communion. But my thought is, like, why are, why are we allowing unconsecrated hands to touch our Lord and distribute him if we do have, like, priests available? Um, and so I guess it's kind of a twofold question. One, like, what's the theology and church teaching behind that? Like, does it matter if it's an unconsecrated hand versus consecrated hand, meaning priest versus layperson? And, um, and if so, then why do we see, like, so much more use of the extraordinary um, ministers of, like, lay people distributing the Eucharist? So, yeah, to clarify, twofold question. One, is there, like, theological slash church teaching on um, lay ministers, like, lay extra ordinary uh, Eucharistic ministers? And then if so, why is there like a, a large amount, like more <laughs> sometimes than necessary that are used? Yeah, I think um, your uh, understanding of extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion and their uses correct in the sense that they are over and above what is uh, needed and only in those certain circumstances when you do have a large congregation and it would uh, unduly prolong the mass or uh, in certain circumstances to bring communion to the sick um, as well. Uh, their use is for those, uh, sorry, I'm told to speak more into the microphone. Um, <laughs> that um, their use should be over and above those who are ordinary ministers, meaning bishops, priests, and deacons. Um, and there is actually also acolytes who are extraordinary ministers, but of the first preference, those who are instituted as acolytes. Um, so theologically, it is something that is understood as an exception to the norm, um, that the norm would be ordinary ministers, I think, if anybody has a theological thought on that. So it, uh, just for accuracy, not that it matters that much uh, uh, to your question, it wasn't um, Vatican II where, okay, were you going to say that? Yeah, it, it wasn't Vatican II where this came out. It was later, and pa Father Patrick, you may know, or uh, Dr. Shrek, exactly where. I know there was a document in the 1990s with a very long title. It was a jointly issued document from several congregations called Instruction on the um, participation of the lay faithful in the, or, uh, extraordinary participation of the lay faithful in the ordained ministry of priests. Is that right? Something like that. Something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know the document. Very long. And, uh, and it specifies that it is extraordinary. It specifies kind of an ordering in which it should happen and conditions under which it should happen. And the implementation's been, been I think, spotty. Like some bishops' conferences have done it more than others. And, you know, it's just been kind of irregularly implemented. But, um, and that's actually okay, a little bit of that messiness, I suppose, is not the end of the world. But, but um, one thing to point out, which I think is significant, is 
I think, and then Father Patrick, you'll, be, you'll know this better than I, I think it's absolutely unprecedented in the whole history of the church. I don't think you had uh, uh, anyone but priests, except in cases of emergency. There were times when, like, yeah, exactly, right, where um, the Eucharist was in danger in some sense, and somebody, anyone, anyone at that point could, could take the, the Eucharist and protect it. So is that right? I think it's a complete yeah, novum. Only... It's a very new thing. It's uh, last 50 years in the church's history is, is very new, you know. Right? Yeah, I think the only other addition may be some signs in the earliest days of the church that uh, non-ordained brought communion to the sick, but not within the uh, sacred action itself. I, I would just like to affirm what Dr. Srila said and point out a lot of people think, well, Vatican II changed this and this and this. There were actually more post-conciliar documents on liturgy than any other topic because basically the, the, the constitution is like a constitution. It wasn't like a rule book. It was giving, like any constitution, it gave fundamental principles. And, but it is the role, appropriate role, of the magisterium of the church, the bishops, to, to take what we have foundationally in Vatican II and make specific pastoral applications. And that document that we referred to is basically saying uh, it is within the legitimate rights and authority of, a bishop, of the bishops to say we can institute this practice of extraordinary Eucharistic ministers giving certain conditions. And of course, you know, and, and it's up to the, the leaders of the church to see that those conditions are followed. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're a little loose about it. And, and yet the, the, the practice itself is not wrong because the bishops have authorized this as a legitimate liturgical practice. And, and it is something we could encourage the proper implementation of that. So. Yeah, uh, just speaking to that and our usage here at Franciscan for extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. Uh, first, there is a, a little small rite in the sacramentary in the Roman Missal to commission in a moment um, somebody to distribute communion. So it is an official church practice. Um, we do it here under the diocesan policy that I each semester our uh, liturgy committee trains and then submits their names to me and I submit them to the diocese and the bishop fully approves and sends a letter out to each one of those Eucharistic ministers. So this is under the diocesan uh, administration, the bishop's prerogative. He approves everyone who is distributing communion um, and they are official and that is the diocesan policy. Um, on a, just on a very practical level, we couldn't do what we do here without uh, lay Eucharistic extraordinary uh, ministers of the Holy Communion. We couldn't do that um, just because we have tremendous amount of volume of people um, and time constraints, you know, that classes, uh, masses would go well over an hour um, just by volume. So uh, we are in that situation where it is necessary. And we do it again by diocesan policy and church mandate, so. May I ask a follow-up? Okay, great. Um, so, yeah, this is also coming from somebody who, when I was in high school, I was, like, enrolled to be a Eucharistic minister, or 
Sorry, yeah, so this is also coming from somebody who like was enrolled to be an extraordinary Eucharistic minister, so I'm definitely not um, extremist like about it, but it's the concerns coming from like reverence, like are we being like the most reverent that we can be to to our Lord? And if my question is, um, not every like new teaching the church gives is obviously obviously they're not bad because the Lord like gave us the authority to make adjustments like as time goes on, but why? Do you guys know, like, why it was changed and why there are more extraordinary Eucharistic ministers nowadays? Like, why that was implemented, what the thought was behind it? I mean, I don't know if it's an unfair question, whether you guys would know that or not. But um, just, like, trying to understand, like, why that was put in place. Because to me, at least, it seems less reverent to have that in place and put it as, like, a norm. At least in my home parish and parishes I see, sometimes... The priest will even give, like, if there are, like, three people that come up when there should only be two, then the priest will hand the ciborium to the layperson instead of distributing it. And I know that's, like, a specific instance, but I've seen it quite often, and it's more of, like, a norm rather than, yeah. <laughs> you understand why I'm asking? Yeah, I'll... As Father Sean was saying, the pastoral judgment and with, of course, the diocesan bishop's permission and those who are duly commissioned to do so, um, with that in mind, I think for the sake of proper reverence, the proper training, and to make sure that the Eucharist is always honored, and um, I'm not going to hear judge priests' motives or what they're doing in their own practice. My own practice would be for myself to distribute communion if I'm celebrating Mass because that's what the norm is. Um, So with that, um, I think the uh, proper reverence, that training that needs to take place, that people understand what they are doing. Um, And certainly in a period after Vatican II, there were periods of experimentation and things were done incorrectly but in the efforts recently and guidance and I think to make sure that things are done properly and due reverence is shown and things are done according to the liturgical norms is important. I, I just add just as a, in, a, in a, my own parish, you know, there are, there's a pastor and an associate, and, but we also on Sunday want to bring Holy Communion to the nursing homes and care facilities. And they celebrate a number of masses, you know, on, on Saturday night and through Sunday night. And uh, in, in other words, if, if, if it were up to the priest and, and even the, the deacon, uh, we would not be able to bring Holy Communion to all these people in care facilities if we did not have some extraordinary form or else we would just work the priest to death. So I, I think it's, it, there is a pastoral balance here, but... Uh, the church has discerned that there is a real need in many cases for the extraordinary Eucharistic ministers to be bringing communion. And that's just one example. Could I interject one more thing? So uh, your question, I don't exactly know what the reasons were that the different dicasteries or curial offices gave for it, but they do, I think in that document, mention what Dr. Shrek and Father Patrick were talking about. But there's a couple things I want to mention. One is a theological issue, and another is a more of kind of a historical development issue that deals with, with reverence, okay? One is, um, theologically, I think the reason why non-priests are called extraordinary ministers is because theologically the idea is the priest 
is actually a mediator in union with Christ, subordinate to Christ. Christ is the one mediator. But other people have participations in the mediation of Christ and through their ordination and the sacramental character of orders, priests receive a very unique kind of mediatorial role that's metaphysical. And so the symbolism theologically is that the priest is the one who mediates God, his grace, in fact, Jesus in the flesh to us, uh, and then brings our prayers and mediates that to, to the Lord, you know. So that mediatorial role is extremely important to preserve, and I think that that's, attempt to preserve that is to call non-priests extraordinary ministers, not the ordinary ones. So that's one thing. Secondly, I want to recommend a very good book by a patristic scholar. Uh, he has a doctorate in patristics from the Augustinianum, and he's an auxiliary bishop, uh, Athanasius Schneider. He has a book called Dominus Est, and in that book, he, he traces, uh, with primary source references, the development of how the Eucharist was handled in the early church, the apostolic period, uh, apostolic fathers and the post-apostolic fathers, both in the Eastern Rites and the Western Rites. It's very interesting. There were different um, kind of liturgical items that were used. Uh, some people would point to communion in the hand, and that's true, but there were very special ablutions and also a special like purificator type things. That were uh, that's documented in the patristic uh, record. So that's a really fascinating book. Uh, it hits upon this. It's called Dominus Est by Schneider. So, thank you all so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, again, thank you all. Um, Dr. Volchine, especially thank you for your comments and the C.S. Lewis reading. I. Um, I made the mistake a couple weeks ago of reading through the general instruction of the Roman Missal, uh, the rubrics for how the Mass should be celebrated, and boy was that a mistake. Um, you will never go into a Mass the same as soon as you know every single thing a priest is supposed to be doing. And um, it, it is helpful to hear that and to remind myself that it's not my position to be judging um, priests in their ministry, and I should be focusing on the gratitude due to our Lord and the most blessed sacrament. Um, my question, I'm going to give a bit of context before I ask my question. Uh, Dr. Shrek, you actually brought up something I wanted to talk about, which is that the majority of the liturgical reforms, uh, especially in talking about the ordinary versus the extraordinary form, and what I would say more specifically the uh, Missal of Paul VI, the Pauline Mass versus the Tridentine form, um, those things occurred outside of and post-Council. And I in my research that I've been doing recently, um, I, I do believe it's, it's almost miraculous that the documents of the Second Vatican, well, it's guided by the Holy Spirit, so sure, miraculous that the documents of the Second Vatican Council are protected from error, protected from heresy. I've, Sacrosanctum Concilium is beautiful, and in it, it says things like the organ should be the primary instrument of worship, that Latin is still the official language of the church. Gregorian chant should have pride of place in the liturgy. But there are little asterisks that allow for certain bishops' conferences or bishops to uh, adjust those rules as, as in pastoral guidance. So something like, um, one example I was reading about is, in certain places in West Africa, standing still when, when a king or a chief enters the room is considered disrespectful. So they allow for liturgical dance. And that makes sense in the context to broaden the church, but then why do you see things like liturgical dance in the Archdiocese of Chicago. Those things don't make sense to me. Um, so I would ask, my, my question is then, to keep it short, because the missiles themselves, the, the actual new masses promulgated 
fall outside of ecumenical councils, would that not also mean they can fall outside of the, the infallible tradition of the church? I know, if I'm not mistaken, the first edition of the Mass of Pope Paul VI had to be recalled because of heresy. So, or am I wrong about that? Do you, oh, okay. So um, my, my succinct question then would be, given that missiles and specific rites of the Mass fall outside of the infallible tradition of the church, is it possible that there is an objective, not preferential difference between the ordinary and the extraordinary form? I'll begin by saying that the Missal of 1570 was promulgated after the Council of Trent uh, by Pope Pius V, who is a saint, and as is Paul VI. Um, So therefore, the Trinitine liturgy, the Trinitine Missal was promulgated after the Council of Trent by the Commission of the Trent that was delegated to the Pope. Similarly, Vatican Council II delegated to the Pope to uh, look to the reform of the liturgical rites, of which he then set up a commission, of which then you have the Missal of Paul VI. So it was a very similar process between the two. Um, And so you see this continuity in that and based in the historical research of the church. Um, so, um, and yes, Vatican II did allow for certain legitimate options and did still have certain um, normative functions so that the, still the typical editions of the Roman Missal today are promulgated in Latin, translations are made from there. And so the references are always to the Latin texts themselves. I had one comment, and you raised a one point, sort of a side point, perhaps. Um, in in the Sacrosanctum Concilium on the Constitution on Sacred Liturgy, there are those places where it says Latin is retained in the Latin rite, and that Gregorian chant has a pride of place, and even the pipe organ is, you know, sort of as a special pride of place. And it's a common question about, well, you know, was are we going against the council because? Gregorian chant and the pipe organ and, and uh, Latin liturgy is not no longer uh, in many places in the church, uh, no longer sort of the standard. And I think that if you, we have to understand that the, at the council there was sort of a time of transition. Um, that the, the bishops were discerning and, and they, they make it clear in those same statements that however other if it seems pastorally, and I'm sort of paraphrasing, but if it seems pastorally better to meet the goals of this, council, this, this constitution, that other vernacular languages could be used. And likewise, other forms of, of music, liturgical music could be used besides chant, and other instrumentation could be used. And so what the council did is, it really left it up to the discernment of the bishops throughout the world to, uh, what, how they would respond to this. And, and I, I referred to that quote that, that the ultimate goal of the liturgical renewal was this full actual and conscious participation. So within about, I mean, I'm just sort of estimating, within five or 10 years after the council, if you look worldwide, most of the bishops of the world decided that it would increase the participation of the faithful to have the vernacular liturgy and to have other forms of instrumentation, not to eliminate you know, uh, the pipe organ or, or other forms of, of, of music other than chant. And the bishops, they have the authority to do that 
and they were actually following the fundamental guideline of the council to really do what they felt best to encourage a fuller, more conscious participation of the faithful. And I can speak as one who grew up for 14 years with the Tridentine liturgy. I found that when I was 15 years old, it was sort of a relief to me to be able to understand the liturgy in my own language without having to sort of be constantly looking at my St. Joseph Missal and looking at the translation from Latin to English. And, and I think this was the bishops judged this to be beneficial to meet the primary goal was participation and active, actual participation. Now, and, and yet, you know, there's still a, a very venerable place for even the Novus Ordo Mass to be celebrated in Latin. And of course, the extraordinary form as well, because it is the, the Tridentine liturgy. But, but I think there's a common misunderstanding. Did, did the bishops sort of reject Vatican II? No, they were really following what was the more fundamental goal of the reform is to really get the faithful to be actively involved in participating and understanding what was happening in the liturgy. Um, and that's just a comment. Thank you. It's a good question, Adam. Big question, yeah. I'd like to interject something if I could. Um, sure. Just a point of clarification, and I hesitate to say it, I have to be careful because it can open up a can of worms and we don't want to get into the tall grass on this. But um, uh, you mentioned a few times, and usually that's fine, it's fine to say this, that uh, the documents after the council aren't, don't enjoy the protection of infallibility the way councils do, and that's fine. But there's a point of clarification, a few points of clarification that are very important. It's hard for me to make them short, and I will do my best. Well, the first is that um, you, you really have to, so councils are extraordinary magisterial events, so that's right. But you have to take uh, conciliar documents in any of the councils, um, kind of almost proposition by proposition. So for example, at Trent, there are some dogmatic definitions, but other things Trent says in the council documents aren't even, not that they're not infallible, it's just that's not even, they're not always all magisterial. For example, what I mean by that is, in one of the Lateran councils, it was launching a crusade. It wasn't teaching on faith and morals. It was doing a disciplinary uh, directive prudential act of direct, you see? And so we wouldn't say, is infallibility in place there or not, like, what, you know. You see what I mean? Yes. So you just kind of have to take, there's a good document that can help. I'll just punt, punt, kick this can down the road, but I wanted to make that point. It's a CDI, a Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith document from 1990 called Donum Veritatis, Instruction on the Ecclesial Vocation of the Theologian. And in it, around paragraphs 25 through 33, they talk about different degrees of, of, a, of weights of magisterial teachings. And, the diff, and we have to assent to all of them and there's different kinds of assent to them. So it's not that you can pick and choose. So I'll just leave it at that just to, and so even if something's outside of a conciliar document, sometimes those things can be infallible as well. Uh, dogmatic definitions of Mary's Immaculate Conception, these weren't at councils. But in any event, I think, yeah, infallibility doesn't kick in when we're talking about liturgical documents implementing, okay. But the church also has a, 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 the gift of indefectibility. So the Lord's not going to allow the church to, to make, if there are any errors at all, the errors, and sometimes there are errors that creep in. Vatican II talks about, you know, problems that need to be fixed in the Missal of Pius V or whatever, right? Is that right? Yeah. So there can be mistakes that creep in, but um, never to the point where it dis it's church destructive. So we can have confidence that, you know, 
we're okay, this is the church, there can be sometimes mistakes. Even if, it's, even if something's promulgated that's not infallible, generally our disposition is it's, we're going we're gonna to accept it, but on the level of experts, they can go, oh, there may be some things we need to clean up here. Things can get a little messy sometimes with the sausage making. You know what I mean? Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Okay. Thank you. I think we're going to have a question from one of our live stream participants through Lindsay. All right. So one of our online students, Ashford, has a question for any of the panelists. He says, the feelings around opposition of Vatican II are so strong among some as to appear almost schismatic in attitude and narrative. Do you feel there is a danger of actual internal schism surrounding Vatican II? And if so, how do you suggest we mend this gulf between believers? Um, yeah, schism is a very terrible thing. I would say, if you look at the history of the church, after just about every Vatican, every ecumenical council, there was some sort of a, a, a rejection. You know, after, there were still Arians after Nicaea. There were still Nestorians after the Council of Ephesus. It, these, and these were condemned by the council. There was still... Uh, Monophysites after Chalcedon, there were still, and after the Trent, there were Protestants who rejected, basically said, we don't accept, this was an attempt to reform the church, and the Protestants rejected it. After Vatican I, there was a group called the Old Catholics who basically rejected the authority of the First Vatican Council. And we saw after Vatican II, there was a schism of the Lefevreites, former Archbishop Marcel Lisbeth, who did not recognize the authority of the council. So schism is, uh, it has happened after Vatican II. There is schism in the church. But mercifully, if we look at the big picture, compared with the adherence to the council, these have been like blips. They've been small, and they usually die out. There are not a lot of Arians running around today. You know, there, well, there are some people who, who perhaps don't know history and are preaching, believing what Arius believed. But the idea here is, um, you know, there, there can always be sort of a, a reaction against the council. Hopefully, we would pray that these councils are tr trying to, to bring renewal and, and strengthening the church. Unfortunately, because of original sin and our own rebellion, there are some who cannot accept the authority of an ecumenical council. So it's sad, and we should pray against that and pray for the unity of our faith through councils. Any other panelists want to respond to that question? All right. Okay. Please. Thank you all, first of all. Um, I think just really quick before my question, and it will make sense, I just want to say I'm a brand new Catholic. I grew up Protestant, so I just converted. Um, and oh, thanks. I don't mean it for that at all. I really don't. It's just the con. Thanks. Uh, it's just the context of my question. Um, it's my understanding, and please again correct me if I'm wrong, um, that part of the purpose of the new mass was to kind of reduce stumbling block blocks for Protestants um, with the mass. And I know that there were Protestant ministers who were consulted. At least that's my understanding. Um, and honestly, I just find that very disturbing. Um, and I mean, you might think I wouldn't because I really appreciate how I grew up and I do, but I worry sometimes there can be, like I'm very well in touch with 
the, how the errors of Protestantism, Protestantism hurt. Um, and yeah, I just, I find it very disturbing and I feel like something was stolen from me in a sense. Because um, I converted for tradition and not for the errors I fled from. And I don't know, I'm not saying like errors, but just those trends. So I don't know if you could give me some guidance on that. Maybe I didn't hear you. What is about Protestantism? And I just didn't hear everything you said. Oh, yeah, no, that's okay. I just, I don't, I guess to put it succinctly, I don't understand why the Catholic Church would seek out advice from Protestants when they're designing a new Mass. Um, well, first of all, if you're talking about the ecumenical movement, the decree on ecumenism of Vatican II, it was the prayer of Jesus that we would all be one. So, yeah. Uh, no, but the true ecumenism is never a compromise. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I don't think it's true to say in the reform of the liturgy that we were consulting Protestants of how the liturgy is to be reformed. Well, yeah, I mean, they do. Well, in the sense of they weren't guiding us. I mean, yeah, in the post-concealer concilium, okay. I believe there were some. I don't know who specifically, and I don't have that off the top of my head, so I'm not going to venture into um, some of those specifics or what sort of consultation they were doing there. I know they're involved in the liturgical movement. Uh, there were some Anglicans, and especially the Oxford movement was uh, making certain calls for liturgical reforms within the Anglicans uh, that... Uh, was used in some of the research uh, just because they were going into original sources that honestly dated before the Protestant Reformation so it was useful critical additions for a common liturgy that we shared prior to the Protestant Reformation. Okay. I think are you sort of asking was there a Protestantization of the, the, mm. in, the in the process of the formation of the new mass? Um, is yeah. that sort of what you're saying? I guess so and and I mean, maybe it's just from the research I've been doing, I'm pretty sure there were like six named Protestant ministers, and I don't know how much they helped or not. But I guess, A, why would that even, um, like what could the Catholic Church have to gain in the Mass? Um, especially just, because I know we're talking that Vatican II wasn't properly implemented according to how it was intended, but if we look at the state of the Church now, we definitely see this fruit that's not good. Um, and I guess just based on my experience, I see a lot of the same consequences that were arising from like the errors of the tradition I grew up in. I see them like affecting the church now. And I guess just kind of connecting those dots in my head, even though I don't want to, but I really, I don't know. I guess my question is just why would that even happen? There's a good historical study uh, by Yves Chiron French historian writer okay. called uh, Annabale Bonini, reformer of the liturgy, and in that mm -hmm. in that book he discusses he he chronicles uh, the history of the process that okay. led from um, the Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Constitution, mm -hmm. from '63 to the Novus Ordo in 1970. Okay, okay. So if, and yes, there were Protestant observers or consultants on the concilium. The concilium, or concilium, was an ad hoc committee that Paul VI constituted, head by, headed by Archbishop Hannibal Bunini, 
to revise the liturgy according to the norms of Sacrosanctum. Um, and yes, they had, Protestants did not have a, a vote, so they were, they were consultants. Yeah. So the, 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 the documentation, not, not hearsay or secondhand, but like mm. from firsthand sources, you can see it in Yves Chiron's book. And um, there's a good article on Catholic World Report by Connor Dugan from 2019 that kind of goes through, summarizes that. So why were they used? Yeah, I mean, some of the accounts were, yes, that they wanted to make a liturgy that could be uh, uh, amenable to Protestants. So, for example, uh, some um, mainline uh, denominations, and I might get some of this wrong, but Scott Hahn would know, okay? Um, it might be PCUSA and I think ELCA have a liturgy that's very similar to the Novus yeah. Ordo. I grew up Presbyterian. Extremely very, similar. Very, very similar. Yes. Uh, and that was on purpose, okay? And so is that a good intention to take away? I think there's a good intention to remove obstacles, but was that a good way to do it? Is a prudential judgment call. And um, I'm glad to hear from, from your perspective that that seems like a, like, you know, like why? I don't know why. You know, I kind of have, I mean, there's a lot. The point is there's a lot of literature out on, on, on this, okay? Okay. Yves Chiron, Lauren Pristas, who taught at Caldwell College, Dominican College in New Jersey. She has a lot of peer-reviewed publications on this and Communio Journal and other things analyzing the development of the Novus Ordo. It's okay. worth looking at. Okay. The, uh, Could I say something? Yes, Dr. Waltz. So before Vatican II, there were many very, very holy and brilliant uh, theologians, priests, who wanted to reform the liturgy. One great writer, Romano Guardini, um, because it had kind of been painted over in many ways. So for instance, at a high mass, the priest said the mass silently with his back to the people, and there might be a very great and wonderful um, musical mass being sung, which covered over in effect, what was happening it, um, during the Mass, so that the creed, a really great creed, like Box B minor Mass, could last all the way into the canon. Um, so, in effect, the only clues you had what was happening were the bells, um, if, unless you were really close, and you might see um, the priest's hands from behind. So, there was a need to uncover the mass. It was getting hidden, and there were quite a few people who were not strenuously trying to follow with a missile. Their readings were all in Latin, and if you didn't have a missile, then you didn't get the readings. And there were a lot of people that prayed the rosary during mass instead of trying to follow the mass. So it if you go to the extraordinary form now, it's not necessarily the way it was before Vatican II. There were, there were masses that were like 16 minutes, silent masses, um, and there were also these huge masses where the music really covered over what was happening. So there was a reason why there were a number of really holy, great theologians, priests, who wanted uh, liturgical reforms so that people would be able to see and hear what was happening in the Mass. Okay. I, I think that's very important. I would just add that 
you know, besides, there have been, and Father Patrick probably could comment more, I, my understanding there was a liturgical renewal movement in the Catholic Church that was almost a century before Vatican II, and these were Catholic scholars, Joseph Jungmann and many others who were studying the liturgy of the early church and trying to restore more of the primitive form of the, of the liturgy and trying to, to and in a sense, as Dr. Waldstein said, sort of uncover what was the sort of the essence of the liturgy. So it wasn't just Protestantizing the liturgy. I, I, I think that's a mis Even we might have had Protestant consultors, but they weren't driving this. This was the liturgical movement within the Catholic Church as the primary driver behind this. And, and just by the way, I mean, a, a parallel would be like we have like in scripture scholarship, you know, one of the things is now Catholics have more dialogue with Protestants about biblical criticism. And it doesn't mean we agree with everything with Protestant scholars, but we're recognizing they have insights that could benefit us. So I would think these consultations were saying, it, just because they're Protestant doesn't mean they don't have something to contribute to a dialogue okay. as we see in the biblical area. So. Okay. so thank you for your question. Thank you. I think we have a few more questions. Um, I wish I did a little more homework before here, but I know there's some document, I think it came out in 1967, called like Musicus Sanctum or something about sacred music. And I, it says something in there about how there are certain instruments which are so associated with secular music and popular music that they should not be used in the mass. So I'm wondering, related to that, just where would we draw the line with, at what point does music become so similar to the pop music you hear on the radio that it's just objectively unacceptable for sacred music, or is there no line? Um, and then I would also ask related to that, like, is it, concerning that a lot of praise and worship music, if you listen to the melody and the rhythm and the instruments that are used, like acoustic guitar and even drums sometimes, like a full drum kit, that if you took away the lyrics, it basically just sounds like a pop song. Sure, we can do a whole talk on that. Um, <laughs> it, the basic summary of that would be, and basing it off of Sacrosanctum Concilium, Musicum Sacrum, as you mentioned, and later liturgical documents as well, um, such as the general instruction of the Roman Missal, Gregorian chant, as was mentioned, I think, earlier, having the pride of place, the pipe organ, but then also mentioning that uh, music to essentially contemporary, I forget the exact wording of it, um, contemporary or current understanding of it would be uh, permissible as well, and then it would be to the conferences of bishops to determine that. Um, so there is a legitimacy to introducing certain things like praise and worship as long as they are liturgically sound, doctrinally sound, and also musically sound as well. I believe are three of the principles articulated. Well, then I just wonder, where would you draw the line with music? Like, could you have, like, say, like a hip-hop liturgy or, like, a dance liturgy? Um, and if not, then why would, like, a drum kit be allowed? I, I think to say a line, you know, I think this is a pastoral judgment. It's, you know, as, as I said in my talk, some people have strong opinions about proper music, what is lifting one's heart up to God. Some people would say praise and worship music lifts the heart and the spirit up to God in a glorious way. 
Some people who don't like this would say, no, it doesn't. <laughs> so I think we're getting to the area of there's no line. It's a matter of pastoral judgment and recognizing people do have strong preferences about music. And, and so, um, in other words, there isn't a clear demarcation. Uh, like in our Summa Law conferences, we have many of our liturgies have praise and worship music, and young people are lifted up in their hearts to God, they're converted, and the fruit is good. I think you've got to judge by the fruit. And some people say, I don't prefer that music at all. That's great. That's a legitimate liturgical, uh, uh, musical difference. And I don't think it's a right or a wrong here. And, and it seems like I, I'm a little concerned that we're, this is right or this is wrong. This belongs in the liturgy and this doesn't. I don't think the church draws that line. Yeah, and just, I think, building on that, um, certainly I would think that it does have to be dignified still and oriented towards the primary aim of the liturgy, which is the glory of God, that we are gathering to worship God and offer him thanks and praise. Uh, so would that eliminate certain forms of music that may uh, be more centered on the person performing? That answer would be yes. Um, but there still can be certain forms of um, contemporary music that can be introduced. Thank you. I think we might have time for one or two more questions. I don't know if any of the five are the same question, so you might want to consult. But why don't you come up here? We're sorry, we could probably keep going all night with questions. Sorry, yeah. This is going to be a quick one. Of, uh, like the two main aspects of a liturgy were like, to praise God and to uh, help the people, correct? So, um, like, which one would weigh more? Is it like a 50-50 help the people, uh, praise God, for example, like, um, with Ad Orientum Mass, is that like, uh, I don't know, is, is it more focusing on the people? Would that make it like a 60-40 or something like that? Um, so, uh, what the question would be like, um, would you say that like, would like ad orientum be, like, for example, ad orientum be an example of like overstepping and going towards um, like more of a 60% of looking out for the people rather than the, the other 40% praise of God? Uh, Can that. I take this one? Yes. So the priest is a mediator. He's standing in persona Christi. So the, the priest presents the prayers and sacrifice for the people to God, and he gives the sacred things of God to the people. So um, if the church is so oriented that the east is behind the altar, then when the priest um, faces with his back to the, to the people towards the east, um, that is symbolizing that part of the priestly office of offering the sacrifice. Um, because St. Peter's um, didn't, the way it's constructed, the east is um, not behind the altar, but in front of the altar. Um, the Pope has always celebrated the Mass in St. Peter's um, facing the people because that's towards the east, actually. Um, but the priest's other job is giving sacred things to the people as um, 
Christ did at the Last Supper. So that's symbolized by him facing the people and bringing the Eucharist. So you could say there's a good theological argument for facing either way. Right. Um, and I think going back to the question of kind of coming up with percentages of yeah, that, that primary or secondary that, that and an such, example, yeah. it's hard to quantify those things. And it's also both and, but I would give the primacy to glorifying God. Um, and if you are glorifying God, the people are being sanctified and uh, formed and made holy. Okay. If your aim is primarily to glorify God, so the in other words, like, uh, like that, that wouldn't be overstepping anything. Okay, uh, right. Okay, thank you. I'd just like to uh, just have a word um, because at the central point of this is the priesthood, and just being a priest. Uh, a couple words on that. Just um, my encounter with things is just as Fulton Sheen said: the priest is not his own. And one thing that. I find in the particular position I'm in at university chaplain is that, first of all, the fullness of priesthood resides with the bishop. You know, that when we, the, what a central word that's going around here is who has the authority? You know, and, I've, and this has come out almost on steroids in, during the COVID times. Who has the authority to make judgments on the liturgy? I mean, we, the bishop, very recently reinstituted the sign of peace. Um, he took it out and he put it back. And he has the authority to do that. He has the fullness of priesthood. I am allowed to have mass, to glorify God, to preach and proclaim, to hear confessions, only because the bishop gives me permission to do so. I do not belong. I'm not an entity to myself. And that's that's deep in the code of canon law, that's deep in the, the dogma of the church, the, the deepest truth, that, that we, we operate from a hierarchy. And the reality is, you know, because the question comes up, why do we do what we do in the church with the liturgy at Franciscan? And, you know, what's the root of that? Well, as I say, the bishop ordains policy for his diocese. Secondly, we have a pastor in, at Franciscan, and his name is Father Dave Pavanka. As president, he's also the pastor, and he makes pastoral decisions. And that's usually done as in, in collaboration with the friars. We get together as friars, and he'll put something out there, and we'll talk about it. And, you know, there are decisions point blank that I make. I sit down with Mr. Rob Palladino, Director of Chapel Ministries, and we kind of collaborate of how we're going to execute things in the liturgy. But again, I want to say something about authority. It's a tricky place to be in. As I say, the priest is not his own. Father Dave called me uh, about two weeks ago. Hey, what are we doing about the foot washing? Well, my short answer is we're not. The bishop sent out a, uh, you know, a decree at the beginning of Lent saying there won't be any foot washing in 2021. That was the end of it. We have to abide in those things. You know, again, one thing that we need to be aware of is um, 
what we're doing, why we're doing it, is at the heart of a living magisterium. There's a living magisterium, and that is the hierarchy of the church. We operate from that in this institution, and I think we operate well in that, to be honest with you, and I think we have some very beautiful liturgies and beautiful things. So, so maybe we'll have at least one more question there. Uh, thank you all panelists for being here and for sharing your expertise. My question is directed to each of you. Uh, what is, uh, given the title of this event, what is one myth that you would say needs to be dispelled either about the Second Vatican Council or about the extraordinary form of the Mass? What is one myth that needs to be dispelled and how can we go forward in implementing that in our day-to-day -day life as the church. I guess I'll, I'll say something, and because it hasn't been addressed. I think that there's a concept of what is the sacredness of the liturgy and what is the reverence that is in the liturgy. And to me, what is, and I think this is supported by the documents of the church, the, the sacredness of the liturgy is ultimately not in what language it's in, not with what particular liturgical form it's in, not what sort of music is played. The essence of the sacredness of the liturgy is the presence of Christ, his presence both in word and in sacrament and in the people. And that's in Vatican II, that Christ is present in the liturgy, in the people gathered, when two or three are gathered in my name, when the word is proclaimed, when the, the, the Eucharist is, is confected, and in the presence of the priest who acts in persona Christi in the person of Christ. That is what makes the liturgy sacred, not what language it's in, what music is used. I think sometimes we lose sight of that. I, I would like to dispel that myth that it's, you know, the liturgy is more sacred when it's in this rite or that rite or that music or the other music. If Christ is present, this is the sacred liturgy. Well said, Dr. Shrek. <laughs> I don't know how to follow that with uh, Christ first and foremost, of course. Um, you know, I think we began with the desire and the discussion of the unity of the Roman rite uh, expressed in two forms. I think that's important to keep at the heart of our life, um, that the liturgy is to promote uh, and bring about a unity of the faithful. We pray that in, uh, I believe, every Eucharistic prayer, that the Eucharist unites us as the body of Christ, um, that we who are partakers of this mystery, uh, this great mystery, uh, is that we are building up the body of Christ, the mystical body of Christ, the church, in union with her head, who is Christ, who is present to us in the liturgy, first and foremost, the source and summit of the Christian life. And that the liturgy, as um, some of the liturgical movement prior to Vatican II talked about being one, traditional, and living, um, that the liturgy lives and unfolds today, uh, that we are living in a moment of time, but we're participating with 
all the saints and all the members of the church who have been able, who have been baptized and have entered into the same mystery. Um, and that unity extends beyond the Roman rite too, which we didn't, which was not the topic of this, but to the Byzantine rites and that are all within union with Rome. So uh, unity is at the heart of it. I suppose I'd like to dispel the myth that everything was perfect before Vatican II and that Vatican II is a bad council. So everything wasn't perfect before. As I tried to say, there were actually problems with the way the liturgy was being um, celebrated. And the way the extraordinary form is celebrated now is better because of Vatican II, actually. Um, and Vatican II can't, it can't have been bad because it was the work of the Holy Spirit, an ecumenical council protected by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I mean, just I think we're all kind of saying the same thing here. And I, I really feel that one of the myths that I've encountered is that we've lost, I guess if I could articulate it this way, the sense of beauty. Um, you know, I, I've come across, I've been in some of the most beautiful, awe-inspiring churches in the world. And yet Finnegan Fieldhouse isn't one of them, okay? But here we are celebrating our masses day to day right here. And yet, there's something beautiful in that. Because if we go back to the first century, the first generation of apostles celebrating for the breaking of the bread in homes, in, in, in people's homes and, and at places where you wouldn't ordinarily celebrate, we've come to a place where we need to refocus where the beauty is at the heart of the celebration of the Mass, the body and blood of Jesus and to recognize that we have some glorious things happening in our midst and to not get caught in a trap of um, thinking we've lost everything. We haven't lost anything, we've regained a lot and regained a focus on the Lord and his presence in the Mass, the presence in the Blessed Sacrament. Um, and the way we articulate that now is truly something beautiful. Thank you all very much. I'm going to put my two cents into Andrew because I appreciate that. I think the myth I would like to dispel, maybe it doesn't fit as clearly, but is that we can be without one of three things, which I think reflect the Trinity, and that's truth, humility, and charity. If we're missing any of those things in the way we worship and the way we live our spiritual life here at the university, I think we're gonna be lacking. If we have truth, but we're without humility and charity, we're just going to be running over people. If we have humility and charity, but no truth, we're going to be wishy-washy. Um, and if we have charity without the others, it's just all gonna be lacking.